Well, guys, uh, today we're talking about what it means that Jesus is the only begotten Son. And I'm just going to jump right into it because this is usually how people who don't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, they, they believe that he's a created being, just like another human being that happened to be perfect and somehow could atone for all of humanity's sins. Um, you know, typically this will be the pushback. They'll use this concept of Jesus being the only begotten and they'll say that he was brought forth in the sense that he was created. And they're just shoving a lot of, uh, I don't know, their cultural understanding into the text and assuming that the our 21st understanding of what it means to be gotten um, is exactly what the scriptures communicate. And it's just not true. So the word begotten in the Greek, here's what it means. It comes from a variation of the word genos, which means literally to uh, procreate properly of the father, but by extension of the mother. Uh, or two, figuratively, to regenerate, to bear, to beget, to bring forth, to conceive, to be delivered of. And that second form of the word begotten is is more of how it's applied to Jesus. And we, we make sense of this with the context. He's going to be brought forth from the dead. He's going to be brought forth um, to be our mediator and our high priest. And so usually when, it, when we're going to explore this out, I promise. But we have to we have to ask these questions when we go, okay, if the word begotten means to be brought forth, uh, to be delivered of, to be beget, <laughs> to beget, um, to be born, to regenerate, we have to ask what in what ways was Jesus um those things? In what ways was he regenerated, brought forth, delivered? Um, of course the Virgin Mary, but I would say also death. He was delivered from death. And so what we're going to do is this. I'm going to show you uh, really quickly on the screen. Hopefully you can see it. We're going to explore Hebrews. Hebrews relies heavily on the Psalms. So the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, it relies heavily on the Psalms. All of the main points being drawn out in the letter to the Hebrews is being reinforced by the Psalms. So whoever wrote the the author of Hebrews has a profound understanding um, of these Psalms. And so what you're going to see is in the very first chapter of the letter to the Hebrews, the very first chapter, Jesus is being compared with the angels as to be way better. He's superior. He's beyond. He's uh, preeminent. He's just on another level. And what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to use the Psalms to reinforce what he says the father declares of the son. So we're going to see statements in the Psalms where the father actually makes statements about his beloved son. Um, And what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he's not just going to reference that individual verse from Psalms. Of course, we have the, you know, the numbers, the chapters and the verses we get later on in history. But when the Psalms are written, you just have this one scroll. So it's this compilation of what is called the prayer journal of the people of God. David's one of the main authors. And so this is, think of it like a, like a song journal, a prayer journal that is, you know, to be sung to God, to be used in times of distress, in times of celebration. And the Psalms, when they're referenced in Hebrews, when the author of Hebrews will quote, you know, from Psalm 2, he's not just going to reference one verse. He knows the surrounding context of that verse because it's not just the one verse that reinforces his point. It's going to be the whole context. And so what you're going to see in the book of Hebrews, all of the different Psalms that are referenced, Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 102, Psalm 110, Psalm 89, Psalm 97, all of these Psalms have 
some really profound commonalities. They have a lot in common. And so there are these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten specific themes that I've drawn out from all of these Psalms that a lot of them have in common. So for instance, and I hope that you'll pay attention to this because I don't just want to tell you what to see. I want you to hopefully find and discover it for yourself and know how to look for it. And so I'm not just going to tell you, you know, in these Psalms, when, when Hebrews references these Psalms, the nations are brought up a lot or the king and his kingdom or the name of the Lord or the enemies of God and his king. I want you to actually look for these things. So what I've done is I've highlighted these things in blue. Anytime the Hebrews references a Psalm that has to do with the nations, you're going to see Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 102, Psalm 110, or the king and his kingdom. Psalm 2, Psalm 89, Psalm 97. So what I'm going to do for you is we're going to keep um, tabs on these different themes. I encourage you to write these down real fast. We have the nations, the king and his kingdom, the name of the Lord, the enemies of God and his king, the priesthood, which is going to be cool because Jesus will be likened to Melchizedek. We have creation and the creator. That's a theme that just God is above his creation as creator. You're going to see righteousness and justice being the, uh, the foundation of the throne of this ultimate king. We have inheritance and sonship. And that's also a common theme. Suffering, the dead, resurrecting from it, and then spiritual beings. These are the ten themes that are um, going to be seen in all the different Psalms that Hebrews references. Okay, so just to recap, I'm going to pace myself. I don't just want to pour a bucket of information on you. In the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, he's going to use the Psalms a lot and reference the Psalms a lot. When the author does, he's not just referencing one line. He knows the surrounding context. So when he draws a point out from one verse in Psalm 89, he knows that the entire surrounding context reinforces that point very heavily. And so that's why in the book of Hebrews, you're going to see these themes as well. The nations, the king, the name of God, the priesthood, because of the fact that the Psalms he's drawing from um, will, you know, have this these common themes. And so this is the reason we're going here, okay? The reason we're going here is because when we think about what it means that Jesus is the only begotten son, the, the letter to the Hebrews paints us the clearest, at least in one single letter, the clearest picture of what that means. You could go to the Gospel of John, you know, you could go to Romans, the Gospel in 16 chapters, but I think Hebrews paints the clearest picture where no one's going to have any questions afterwards, where you go, that's very clear. The clearest picture of what it means that he's the only begotten son. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to make our way to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, and the author just goes right for it. Long ago, in many ways, and I want you to see this. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but there's going to be a lot of transitional contrast, meaning we're going to see the Old Testament, not that Jesus is at odds with the Old Testament, but he's on another level than the Hebrew scriptures, the, the, the law, the prophets, the Psalms and writings. He's the fulfillment. He's the culmination. He's what it was all pointing to, right? He's the substance, not the shadow being cast. So what you're going to see is in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So right off the bat, Two verses in, Jesus is the better spoken word and the perfect revelation of the Father. 
No other word from the prophets, no other prophet perfectly embodied the word and the character of the Lord like Jesus. That's why he's not just the best prophet, the best messenger. He's the word of God himself. We've talked about this. Whom God appointed the heir of all things. No one else can can claim this rightful status as their own and go, I'm the heir of all things. You're not. No one else is. No other spiritual or physical created being in the immaterial material world has this status as the rightful heir. And this is Jesus being appointed. This language is going to be very important for what it means that Jesus is the only begotten son. It's this appointment language. It's validating. It's confirming. It's not bringing forth as if to not have existed prior to his human life. He did pre-exist his human life as the eternal word emanating from the Father. But when he comes into human flesh, he's appointed, he's validated to be something that we all need him to be, which is our human representative that stands in between us as the bridge between us and the Father, as the one who mediates a better covenant. And the covenant is built on his shoulders. The government um, is on his shoulders, Isaiah 9 tells us. So, He's appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So now Jesus is, you know, communicated as the one through whom the world comes into existence. He's the radiance of the glory of God. You know, what the rays are to the sun, Jesus is to the Father. The actual visible presence that we see in the Old Testament as the presence of God, the angel of Yahweh, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. You can't get any clearer than that. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. These are all such uniquely exclusive uh, characteristics, man. No one else has this. No one else is the exact imprint of the Father and his nature. No one else is the radiance of the glory of God. No one else brought the world into existence. No one else is the heir of all things. No one else is the perfect, revealed, spoken word from the Father. After making purification for sins, now this is where we're going to see he's communicated as priest as the perfect high priest. All these ideas that the author of Hebrews is going to unpack throughout his letter are kind of shoved into this first chapter. The better word, the better priest, better than angels, the the one who created the world, um, the perfect son, the appointed mediator. He's the After making purification for sins, he sat down. Unlike every other high priest before him, whose work continued until they died, and then it was passed on to their kids, He's finished. His work as high priest is done. And he's at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is a term used only of God alone. Double statement there, but at the right hand of the majesty, meaning signifying his authority and power. Having become as much superior to angels as the name, as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so already in the first, what, four verses, we see several of these themes. I'm assuming for you, can, for you so you can see it. We see the name of God, right? We see the king and his kingdom, the rightful heir, uh, inheritance and sonship. We see the creation-creator relationship where Jesus is just beyond the creation. We see the priesthood mediator pure, making purification for sins. Um, we see the, I think... Uh, after making purifications for sins, you could say that includes the suffering from you know to the into the death, into the dead, and we see the spiritual beings. He's better than angels. Like already, uh, pretty much every theme that you're going to see unpacked in Hebrews and the Psalms, right there in three and a half verses, four verses. It's pretty crazy. And so what what we're going to do is 
every time a psalm is referenced, we're going to go to that whole chapter. Because look, the first five goes right into it. Right after saying he's the better word, he's the heir, he's the one through whom all things exist, he's better than angels, he's the perfect high priest, which he'll unpack later, he goes, hey, just let's pause real fast. He's talking to Hebrews who are tempted to go back to the old covenant system and abandon Jesus. And he's going, look, to which of the angels did God ever say? Okay? So now the author of Hebrews is going to quote God word for word. When did God ever say this to the angels? Pause. And he's going to quote Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So right out of the gates, five verses in, we have the language of Jesus being begotten. What does it mean already in five verses? All this, all this, uh, these four verses backloading verse 5. So far, according to the context, what does it mean that he's begotten? Well, He's appointed to be the heir of all things. He's appointed to be the one who's sufficient to make purification for all sins. He's appointed to sit down at the right hand of the Father. He's appointed to have the name that's more excellent than all of the angels. It's appointment language. Establishment, validating language. Nothing about being created so far. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Okay? Now some people will take this and go, see... This right here, this is the Father saying today, marking the beginning of Jesus' existence. No, today being the establishment, the validating decree from the Father to let everyone know, this is my son. It's appointment language. It's establishing. Think about the baptism of John when he baptizes Jesus. There's a voice from heaven. Think about the Mount of Transfiguration. The cloud comes over Peter, James, and John. We have a validating statement from the Father. This is my son. Listen to him. And then Moses and Elijah disappear. Who's left? Jesus. So the language here is to, is to contrast, right, how uh, Jesus with the angels. He's so different. He's so much better. He's on another level. He's not worth comparing to the angels. He's not a spiritual messenger. He's not just a... Uh, you know, a being that's sent out to do the bidding of the Father, you know, as if to be created by Him. This is Jesus doing the will of the Father in humble submission, having equal divine standing with the Father, but submitting that, laying aside His glory, remaining God in the flesh, coming down. But we'll see that in a bit. So the first psalm that's referenced is Psalm chapter 2. Let me take you to Psalm chapter 2. We're going to look at it, okay? So the fir very first psalm that the author of Hebrews wants to reference is Psalm chapter 2, which has a lot to do with, guess what? Guess what? The nations. Now he's quoting specifically seven. Yeah, seven. This is our quotation in Hebrews. Remember the Lord said to me, you are my son today, I've begotten you. Now David, being a Christ type, there's a lot of foreshadowing with his life in comparison to Jesus. But he's, he's nowhere near the level of Jesus. Jesus just ends up being the perfect, you know, truer David. The actual David we need. David is a lesser Christ, but he's still a type. He's a type. He's a shadow being cast by Jesus, the actual son. Get it? S-U-N. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you're my son today, I've begotten you. Now watch. Verse 8 goes right in. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage. Whoa, oh, what's going on here in this 
specific scenario. Let's read back all the way back to verse one. Okay. So the themes that you're going to see, which I put up forth, you know, right up front so you can see them are the nations and just in Psalm chapter two, you're going to see the nations. You're going to see inheritance. You're going to see sonship. You're going to see the name of God. And then you're going to see the throne of God and his king all right here in what? Uh, 12 verses. All those themes that Hebrews is going to unpack. It's as if the author of Hebrews has, and I'm not saying he has, but it's, it's as if he's mastered the Psalms. He just sees Jesus right and left. He knows exactly where he plugs in. And all the Psalms he intentionally chooses all support each other. He's not taking them out of context because all these prophetic Psalms used of David actually are more true of Christ. So he says, why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. So now we have the rebel nations, the enemy nations plotting something, raging. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against who? Who are they coming against? The Lord. Against who else? Against his what? His anointed. His Mashiach. His Christ. His Messiah. So the anointed one here, we know is Jesus. But if you go back to Hebrews 1, before he even quotes Psalm chapter 2, we already saw that he's the anointed appointed one. This is the one who was anointed by the Spirit from heaven. You know, the waters. When he was baptized, he's appointed to be the son. He's appointed to be the better word. He's appointed to be the better revelation. You see me, you see the father, he says. He's the exact imprint. He's the appointed heir of the universe. He's the appointed high priest. It's appointment, anointment, a language. I said a language, but goes with it. So look, the nations are rebellious and they're counseling together. Hmm. Conspiring against God and his anointed one. You're going to see that this anointed one is also God in the flesh. You're going to see this. Okay. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. <laughs> yeah. He who sits in the heavens, he laughs. Oh, that's so cute. You guys are conspiring against me like you have a chance. <laughs> that's hilarious. The Lord holds them in derision. I will tell you, I think this is mostly used because of the way that Peter and the apostles will reference this. Um, where does it say this? Hold on. I'm trying to remember where this actually comes into play. I don't want to talk out my butt before I validated it. Um, I believe that Peter and the apostles will use this same psalm in their prayer, Acts 4.26. That's what I thought. So I just want to show you how, I know I'm jumping all over the place. I apologize. I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, teach me while I'm teaching them. And he's doing that. I had never even considered this. Acts 4.26. Thank you, Lord, for teaching me. This is Peter and the apostles right after uh, they're mistreated by the Pharisees and religious leaders and they're released. They go back to the people and they pray and they go make us bold and they come together and they say, uh, watch, uh, sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea who through the mouth of your father, our father, David, your servant said by the spirit, 
So they're affirming that Psalm chapter 2 is the Spirit of God filling David and inspiring him to say what he says. Why did the nation rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Look at how they apply that text to their modern context. This is, this is how they see it. This is how they see it, and they're not wrong. Truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the Israelites, and they wanted to take him down. So when we go to Psalm chapter 2, this portion right here is essentially the people conspiring, Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, Israelites coming together going, let's take this Jesus of Nazareth down. And they do, they crucify him, but he doesn't stay dead. He breaks out of the grave in resurrection power to conquer death on our behalf. So, so notice the, the actual plotting, the conspiring, the coming against here is specifically going against Jesus, which because he's from the Father, when he says, if, remember how he says, if you reject me, you reject the Father. If you receive me, you receive the Father. That's exactly what's happening. If they conspire against the Son, the Anointed One, they're conspiring against the Lord, the Father. And they're saying, let's break their bonds apart, cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laugh, laughs. Why? Because they're playing right into to God's hand. By conspiring to kill Jesus, they're doing exactly what it is that God knows needs to happen, that the Messiah needs to die on our behalf. So he's laughing in derision, thinking that, you know, they think they'll actually have victory over God and his son. They won't. Then he will speak to them in his wrath terrify them in his fury saying as for me now watch i have set my king who's this anointed one well he's also referred to as god's king who's going to be set you might say appointed another word on zion jerusalem the holy hill of god i will tell of the decree now again here's the context and i want to break this down so you see it because this is all going to play into what it means that he's the only begotten the first time we see it he's referencing psalm 2 in other words, the begetting here is appointment language to be king over the enemy nations through a sacrificial death. Do you see it? Almost every time you see Jesus being referred to as the only begotten son, it involves death, it involves power, it involves resurrection. Um, for God gave, you know, love, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The, the giving there is uh, allowing the Son to be given over to death and human evil on our behalf. The giving as a gift, the Son gives his life. He says, look, no one takes my life, I give it freely. So the Son gives his life as a ransom for many. So here, he's going to go right into it. Let me tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my Son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. What exactly did we see in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is the rightful heir over? It's right here. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, again, same chapter where he's going to reference Psalm 2. He's the heir of all things. He created the world. The entire world belongs to who? Rightfully, Jesus. The, the, the begetting language here it refers to Jesus receiving what Adam and Eve forfeited, what humanity forfeited in the garden. Authority over the earth to steward, to cultivate, to rule under God's authority. 
They forfeited that when they gave themselves over to the serpent in Genesis 3. So Jesus here is getting the nations as his own possession, as the first resurrected human, so that we alongside him can rule the nations with him. Because we can't get it back. We can't win back our authority and, and power over the earth and dominion. So Jesus, God in the flesh, he gets it back as our human representative. But he rightfully owns it as God. So it's this weird thing where as God, he owns it all. But as man, he's getting back what we've lost because he has to be one of us fully. So this is God making the nations his heritage. But the nations, I thought, were conspiring and raging against him. This seems like the rebel nations are giving, given over to his wrath, right? But the nations in general, good and bad, are under the authority and the dominion of Jesus as the ultimate king of kings. So notice, begetting here has to do with rule and authority and appointment to a throne, ascending to a throne. You will break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. I'm going to highlight this in green because these are the rebel kings. Be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. So in that one psalm, you saw the nations. You saw the inheritance language, the possessing, the heritage. You saw the sonship language. Today you're my son, I've begotten you. You see the name of God here. Um, unless I skipped it. Where is it? Um, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, you can say in his name. But the fact of the matter is that I think I wrote down name here. Uh, because of the fact that he is the perfect representation as the anointed king, um, the Lord validates him. And so I think Jesus being the king, I think we all agree, the New Testament tells us that he is the name of God, the perfect sum total of his character. But me, I messed up there. Either way, okay, I want you to see the nations, the inheritance, the sonship, the king, and his throne. Um, and then I want to show you where else references this specific psalm. Hebrews chapter 1 is not the only place that references that exact psalm. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 4 does the same thing. Okay. It says, um, uh, which he promised, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, this is Romans chapter 1, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, which he promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, okay, now here's his connection to David. It was very important that uh, you see the connection to David because the son of the real true son of David was going to rule on the throne. According to the flesh, meaning he really was a human, he was declared to be the son of God. There's that appointment validating decree language where he's anointed and it's a declaration. He's declared to be the son of God in power. How? In other words, when specifically was the clearest statement from God that this is my son? You might say at the, at the baptism of John. And I would go, 
well, not everyone heard that. Or you might say the Mount of Transfiguration. I say only Peter, James, and John were there. Of course, it's recorded for us. But the clearest statement that most, that more people got to experience and go, that right there is a very clear statement that he's been approved by the Father was his resurrection in power from the dead. So the declaration of sonship here, and, and I, I put this first, this is not uh, a reference to, of, of Psalm 2. This is not Paul taking Psalm 2 and, and quoting it. But I want you to see the, um, the begetting language, the, de- the declaration. He's declared to be the son by the resurrection. So death and resurrection are almost come together to be this statement from the Father that this is indeed my anointed, my Messiah, my, my King, my Son. And it, the begetting, the begotting, begetting, is the uh, clear, you know, declaration. And in verse 5, um, Paul says he's received obedience or uh, apostleship to bring obedience among all the, the nations. So now, if you go back to Psalm chapter 2, um, if I can pull it up, remember how God says, I'll make the nations your heritage, your possession. That is not just speaking like you'll dominate. This is also speaking of uh, the nations can actually have a chance to take refuge in this appointed one. That's why the obedience of the faith here, Paul's trying to bring that among the nations to Jesus. Now the nations, not just the Jews, but all surrounding pagan nations have a chance. All Gentiles have an equal opportunity to actually come to the Son in obedience and faith. So let me take you to a clear reference to Psalm 2. I don't know why I had Romans 1 first. But here you're going to see the exact same thing. You're my son today, I've begotten you. This is not Hebrews 1.5. This is Acts 13. Quoting the same psalm that Hebrews 1.5 is. And look at the context. Okay. In other words, so far the author of Hebrews to beget is appointment anointing language and involving death and resurrection. To be king over the nations and rightful ruler of all as the human representative we need. Same ideas in Acts 13. Acts 13, it says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, which I believe this is um, Paul. Yeah, Paul stands up and he goes, men of Israel, let me tell you something. Paul is a master, uh, I guess, bridger. (laughs) He knows how to bridge that gap between the first century Israelites and Jesus by using their Hebrew scriptures. In other words, he's a master at going, hey, you know in the Hebrew Bible it says this? And they go, yeah. And they go, he goes, yeah, Jesus. And they go, oh my gosh. So he goes, I, uh, this is what the Lord says um, about, you know, when Saul was, King Saul was taken from Israel and God said, I've chosen another king. He said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Okay. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. I just want you to note the connection to David there as Savior. Not not David as Savior, but Jesus descends from David, and Jesus is the Savior. So, so far, in Romans chapter 1 and in Psalm 2, we saw this allusion to David. Jesus has to descend from David physically, or he cannot be the rightful king of Israel. Okay, 
And we bring you the good news that what God promised to our fathers, there's that language of promise again. It's all there in the Hebrew scriptures. This that he promised, he's actually fulfilled it. He did it to us, their children, right? By raising Jesus. So what does Paul have in mind here? The resurrection of who? Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, the resurrection of Jesus, the promise of the good news that God has for his people is in Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him, in case you missed it the first time, from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he's spoken in this way. I will give you, here's the appointment language, the giving of the nations, the giving of the heritage. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Then he'll go on to, to say, um, you know, David, um, after he served the purpose, he died. So this can't be about David because David saw corruption. This has to be about someone else who will come from David who will not see corruption, meaning they won't just rot in the grave and they won't just stay there. And Jesus does break out of the grave in power. So, so notice, for Jesus to have been begotten of the Father has nothing to do with creation. You might say, well, the new life from the dead, right? That new uh, life 2.0, where Jesus is resurrected to a glorified body, then the new life we're offered. You might say, well, that's hand fashioned by God. That's fine. Jesus himself is not created, though. This has nothing to do with Jesus coming into existence. You know what it does, though, have to do with? It has to do with him being raised from the dead, which is a form of what? Being brought forth. You might say the, the grave is conceiving and bringing up who? Jesus. Because God appointed it to be so. That's the same word used, begotten. It means to be delivered of. He's delivered of death, to be regenerated. He's regenerated to life, to be brought forth, to be conceived in that sense. He's definitely brought forth and conceived from the grave so that we can now have life 2.0. So I want you to see anytime he's called the begotten son or God begets the son, it's referring to rest. And Peter or Paul explicitly connects that. He goes, you know, he actually raised Jesus from the dead. We see this written in the second Psalm. It's like verbatim what we see in Hebrews 1.5. Same idea. So in other words, God fulfilled his promise to the patriarchs. How? How did God fulfill his promise? What promise did he make to the patriarchs? Well, it seems to be this, this uh, promise to, uh, of, of life, of descendants, of seed, of a continuing legacy and name. And all the promises God gives to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, David, Moses, the list goes on and on, Joshua. All these promises are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus so in that sense, God becomes the father of, of Jesus through the resurrection. Not like he officially is like, you know what, I am your father now. But it's this statement to the world, to the spiritual realm, that this is indeed my son. He's indeed my son. Um, 
And then verse 35 and 36 talks about how David died, but Jesus didn't. So, you know, back to Hebrews chapter 1, where we started this, okay? We saw Jesus is the appointed heir. He's superior to angels. He's inherited the name that's far above any angel. No angels ever has ever been begotten of the Father. So this is weird. If, if you go, well, this is talking about Jesus being created. The whole point here is no other angel has been begotten of the Father. Are angels created beings? Sure. So if begetting meant creating and bringing into existence, then this statement wouldn't be true because angels have been begotten. They are created beings. But this is not talking about creation. Jesus is not created. He's brought forth from the dead. And that new life, that new resurrected life that he offers us uh, is only possible because he suffered and died in our place. Um, so Jesus being begotten in Hebrews 1, so far, just the Psalms and just whatever you know allusions to Psalm 2 there are, it involves inheritance, sonship, being an heir, the, the superior name, being above angels, God being the Father, it involves angel worship. You're going to see uh, God tells the angels to worship him. Again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He will be to me a son. This is going to be Psalm 89. We're not there yet, but I want you to see the connection. The being a father to the son notes the begetting here. This is what it means. So if you go, what does it mean for Jesus to be begotten? It means God is a father to him. And the Son is a Son to the Father. I will be to Him. How is He a Father to the Son? Well, in all the ways that David says, well, who are you, who are we that you're mindful of us? You care for us, you protect us, you love us, you guide us. And, and the ultimate statement that God is a loving Father to His children and that He validates the Son is that He brings Him up from the dead. Not that He, sp he didn't spare Him from death. He actually allowed Jesus to conquer death in our place and made that that whole thing you know come about and then we saw the the conquering of the rebellious nations and the enemies of God so there's one more place where Psalm chapter 2 is referenced can you guess where it is with my kids screaming in the background hopefully it's a good scream any other place you think exactly you're right it's in the same letter to the Hebrews it's four chapters later. Hebrews 5.5, 5, watch. Same exact quotation. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Acts 13, Hebrews 1.5, that allusion in Romans 1.4. Look at what the context is of the son being begotten. So also, Christ did not exalt himself. What do you mean so also? Well, no one takes this honor for himself. No one becomes a high priest of their own decision. You know what? I haven't been a high priest 48 years of my life, but today's Saturday and I'm feeling good. I'm going to be a high priest. You don't just get to decide you meet the standard for that. You don't get to take that honor for yourself. You have to be called. You have to be called by God, just as Aaron was. Now watch. That same idea of calling or appointing to high priesthood is going to be used of Jesus. So also, just like Aaron and any other high priest, Christ didn't exalt himself to be made a high priest. 
he was appointed when? How? Well, by him who said to him, you are my son today, I've begotten you. Now, who said this? The Father? The Lord? So the Lord says this to Jesus Christ, today you're my son, today I've begotten you. And apparently, the author of Hebrews goes, that's Jesus being appointed to be made a high priest. It's exaltation language. It's appointment language. It's being anointed to be something. It's a calling. Do you see it? It has nothing to do with being created. Absolutely nothing. You can make every case in the world, well, Jesus being the only begotten means he was brought forth and created. Nope. Read every context of those verses you find and then go back and read the Greek word for begotten. You will not find any logical, biblical reason to think that Jesus being begotten means he's created. That's a garbage argument. He's appointed. Well, that means he wasn't that before. Exactly. He had never died before he died. Surprise. The appointment comes through the death. In other words, everything Jesus becomes for us, he'd never been prior. He'd never been the dependent one on the Father. He'd never been hungry and tired and thirsty as a man. He'd never been subject to temptation. He'd never been put in the wilderness where the devil tempts him face to face. He'd never been hung on a cross. He'd never experienced death. He'd never gone into the grave. Exactly. And that doesn't minimize his divinity. That just speaks to the fact that Jesus chose to subject himself to to something he'd never known. And through that sacrificial death, laying down his life, there's appointment, exaltation with it. And then Psalm 2 is referenced. You're my son, today I've begotten you. He also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll see this in Psalm 110. Psalm 110. So notice, I am not making this up. The author of Hebrews is making it very, very clear. What it means for Jesus to be begotten here is to become a high priest forever, appointed by the Father through his death and resurrection, just like it's after the order of Melchizedek. Then he'll go on to talk about Melchizedek. The point here is, Jesus being begotten is to become our human high priest, representative, mediator, covenant upholder, something he'd never been as a man because he never was a man prior to his human existence. So again, the eternal word emanating from the Father existed prior to his human life. When he puts on flesh, guess what he becomes? Something he's never been before. A man. Real human nature in essence. Real tiredness and hunger and thirst. Real subject to temptation, but he never sins. He's appointed through his death and resurrection to be our high priest. I thought God's always been our high priest. Our representative, our human, holding up the other side of the covenant? No. God's been the covenant keeper, but man's always been on the other side. That's why a new covenant comes in, and you can fight about the language. It's not new, it's, it's renewed. It's a, it's a new covenant. It's built on the old. The old makes way for the new. Okay, that's the point. Jesus is upholding on our, on our behalf, he's upholding our end of the covenant. That's why he says, come take refuge in me. So Jesus is appointed to be a high priest. He's made a priest forever. Guess what? The gifts, just like a high priest brings gifts, 
What are Jesus' gifts? Well, the prayers and supplications, the loud cries and tears, the going to death. Even when God didn't save him from death, the Father didn't save him from death, he allowed him to go into death. And although he was a son, he learned obedience. Well, how can the son learn obedience? If, because he's never been a human being dependent on the Father to do the will of the Father. He's always been eternally existent with the Father as his eternal word, as the name, as the angel of his presence. And don't get caught up on, on, in, on the word angel. Just think the presence, the visible presence of God. That's what Jesus was to his people in Exodus, in Deuteronomy. Okay, so he was a son and he learned obedience. Sonship here. I mean, read about in Luke's account. It says that he grew. Jesus grew in, in stature. Jesus grew in wisdom. He subjected himself to the need to learn as a person. He laid aside omniscience. He laid aside knowing everything and subjects himself to knowing what the Father wants him to know and needing to grow up and learn. He learns obedience through what he suffered. So notice the begetting here has to do with priesthood being our high priest to bridge the gap between us and the Father and it has to do with death and suffering and guess what being made perfect i thought jesus was always perfect pause he became the source of eternal salvation i thought he's always been the source of eternal salvation not as the physical human representative we need to accomplish our salvation by paying our debt no one has done that except jesus so the being made perfect here relates to what being begotten, being appointed. How is he made perfect? Well, he becomes the source of eternal salvation to all who believe as our high priest, as our human representative. He achieves our salvation. He pays our debt. He takes our evil upon himself. He dies our death. He resurrects to new life. And he's perfected in the sense that not that he was lacking, but he becomes what he was not prior because he had to die in order to become that. Just like Jesus says, look, if a, if a grain of wheat falls in the ground, it dies alone, right? And it'll yield. This is the point. Um, this is the whole point, is that he's the source now. As our physical human representative, God in the flesh, he's now able to give us the eternal life we were lacking. Uh, God wasn't able to give us that? Yeah, not justly because of sin. Our sinful condition, sin is a disease. Everyone's plagued with it. It's a, it's a deep disease that no, we're helpless to do anything about. We can't fix our spiritual condition of death. So Jesus does. He fixes it. Everyone who obeys him. He learned obedience through his suffering, through his death. He's designated by God to be a high priest. So notice the connection. High priest, salvation, being perfect, being appointed and begotten as an eternal priest. That's the idea. And there's no reading between the lines or making stuff up. It's very clear. Both the appointment of Jesus as our eternal salvation and our high priest, that happened after his death, which assumes what? The resurrection is the, the means by which he becomes this. He's resurrected to what? A new glorified body. To life 2.0 that he offers us. 
so that we can be born again into that same new life. This is Jesus achieving everything we could not. Couldn't. So that's just the first quotation and reference to Hebrews in the letter to the Hebrews. It's Psalm chapter 2. So we saw it in Acts 13, we saw it in Hebrews 1.5, we saw it in Hebrews 5.5, 5, and we saw that allusion in Romans 1.4. Every time, resurrection, appointment, begetting means to become, not to be created. I can become um, a janitor. I can become a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor. Does that mean I was created? No. Well, I am a created being, but I'm saying like, if Jesus becomes something new, he puts on flesh, he becomes a man, he becomes the source of eternal salvation. Why does that assume creation? The whole point is, I've been created, like, like me as a person. I'm alive, I'm doing my thing. If I become a new, I take a new job, and I become, um, again, a janitor, that doesn't assume like, oh, he got created again. No, that just means me already existing became something different than what I was prior. It's transformation. It's the caterpillar becoming a butterfly. You know? It's that kind of idea. Don't want to be overly simplistic, but some of you, like, that that hit you. You're like, oh, that's what I needed. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. Um, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, we'll go on. After we quote Psalm 2, can we agree that to be begotten here has nothing to do with being created so far? You can shove all your cultural ideas and what your favorite teacher taught you. It's not there. It is not there. If there's anything that has to do with creation, you can say Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 1 talks about our new life in Christ. God created that. And that's the product of Jesus' resurrection. So now he's going to quote Psalm 89. I say, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. Okay. Let's go to Psalm 89 and explore this whole text. Because remember, the context of Hebrews 1 is Jesus is better than angels. When did God ever say this? Then he'll quote Psalm 2. Today you're my son. Or Psalm 89. You know, today I, uh, I think some translations will say I become to you a father, which I don't think is an, a helpful translation because it confuses the crap out of people. But Psalm 89, okay? What you're going to see again are these themes we've been talking about over and over. You're going to see the king in his throne. You're going to see the spiritual beings as being less than God. You're going to see the enemies of God. You're going to see that creation-creator relationship. You'll see justice and righteousness. You'll see inheritance and sonship. And you'll see the name of God. All one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven of those themes are in this one chapter. Now, this is a really long chapter. It is, good Lord, 52 verses. So, we're not going to read all the way down. That's just, we don't have time for that. This is what Psalms, or Hebrews 1 is quoting, though. In the context of Jesus is better, he says, He shall cry to me, you are my father. What does Jesus cry out on the cross? My father, my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. Right? He says, my father, why have you forsaken me? Allowed me to undergo death. He's making a statement. Fulfilling prophecy. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So guess what? People want to make this 
uh, creation language. See, he's creating Jesus to be the firstborn. Again, you can make me um, an employee of your company. You can make me an heir of your estate. You can make me, it has nothing to do with being created. But we already talked about this in the last episode on what it means that he's the firstborn. Okay, so what I want you to see is, um, I wish I listed the verses here. Um, This is what the author of Hebrews is quoting in chapter 1, verse 5. The begetting here, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. The he shall be to me a son, I'll be to him a father. The context again is what? Kingship, ruler, authority over the whole earth, over all the nations, as we've seen time and time again. So what I've done is I've highlighted a few points that we can just pause at. Verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I'll make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness, right? You've made a covenant with your chosen one. Here's David again. I will establish your offspring forever, your throne for all generations. So so there's the throne of this one who's being talked about in verse 20. Let the heavens praise your wonders. Let the sky, who, who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? So the point here is, the, the creation-creator relationship. God's above it all. Even all the heavenly beings that are in the skies, in the heavenly realms, in the vi- invisible realms, in the council of the holy ones, they fear the Lord. They cannot be compared to God. Okay? You rule the raging of the sea. So what I've highlighted is just so you see the themes. I think Psalm 89 is organized thematically. So it's like spiritual beings, in the heavens, and then creation, right? Over the nations. Rahab is represented as a nation. Um, Tabor and Hermon, praise your name. So there's the name of the Lord. The mighty arm to save. Righteousness and justice. Remember, that's a, that's a theme in, in Hebrews. So righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So we see the throne of God again. So, so far we've seen the king and his throne, the righteousness and justice, the spiritual beings, the crushing of the enemy right here. Uh, you crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty right arm um, or mighty arm. We've seen creation-creator relationship. We saw justice and righteousness, the name of God being praised, uh, exulting in his name in verse 16. Again, this is a really long chapter. And then this is when we get to, he shall cry to me, you are my father. And it comes right after all that, the king and his throne, spiritual beings being beneath God. And that's why Hebrews 1 is touching on that. That Jesus is above all the spiritual beings. Angels don't just mean, you know, um, good angels. It can be all spiritual beings, spiritual messengers. And so either way, he's the highest of the kings of the earth, over the nations, over the enemies, okay? Um, And I believe I highlighted other things. Oh, yeah, here. Uh, the, the sonship and father language um, and the being the rightful heir. My covenant, I'll establish his offspring forever. His throne will be as the days of the heavens. So now this, this son has a throne. Um, uh, his offspring shall endure forever. So that's pretty much what I wanted to show you in Psalm 8. That's a long psalm. Um, and then you can go down and I believe... The exaltation here. Um, his enemies, 
temporarily having some kind of joy and what looks like a victory, but God will bring justice. And then the inevitability of death and the fact that we all go down to Sheol. So it's that idea of going down into the grave, going down into the death as it relates to Jesus being or this this son, right? Uh, having God as his father. And that's why Hebrews 1 will, will quote this because all those ideas are present. For Jesus to be begotten, the begotten son, has nothing to do with being created. Zero. Absolutely zero. Um, you can go to 2 Samuel 7 for some extra study and um, you'll see that God makes this promise. In fact, let's go there because this is the original quotation Um that the actual uh, statement made right here, he shall be to me a son. Second uh, Samuel 7, God is talking to David. And he goes, uh, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Uh, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. It's interesting that the Lord declares to you that the Lord seems oddly repetitive. Will make you a house. House doesn't represent building, but actual name, family, heritage, household. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, see, children, who shall come from your body. This is why all these allusions to David are really important because there are promises God made to David specifically about one who would sit on his throne later in the future who would have the ultimate victory, the ultimate house, the ultimate name, the ultimate conquering of the nations, the ultimate rule and authority. He will build, he will build a house for my name. Okay, and you go, that's talking about Solomon. Pause. We'll go there. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. Now, talking about Solomon specifically here, Solomon does build the physical house of God, the temple, right? David has Solomon. Solomon builds the temple for God, but Solomon is far from perfect. Wise, but really dumb. Um, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity... I will discipline him with the rods of men. What's different about Jesus and Solomon is that Jesus never sinned, never needed this discipline, never needed this correction, never, never needed this you know, repentance, never needed this grace and mercy. Jesus was perfect, never sinned, never failed, never made a mistake. Okay, And so the idea here is the house. And we know that in, in later in Hebrews, it will actually show that, yes, Solomon built a physical house, Jesus builds a better house. In fact, let me see if I can find it. If you guys want this app, it's called uh, Bible Study. It's free. It's by Olive Tree. O-L-I-V-E Tree. Uh, right here. This talks about the house. Guess what? Hebrews chapter 3. Okay, so speaking of house, remember God said, yeah, he'll build me a house. Well, Solomon wasn't the guy. He failed, he died, he messed up, he sinned, he built a physical house. Jesus has been counted more worthy of more glory than Moses. How much more glory? Well, more glory as much as the builder of a house has than the house itself. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. It's very clear. Like we as the people of God are the household family of God alongside Jesus. We are his house. And notice 
Um, it's because of Jesus laying the foundation. He built the house. Uh, Jesus talks about this. Um, he puts himself where Solomon is in the Old Testament sometimes. He'll say, look, you guys love Solomon. The queen of Sheba came to Solomon, and look, someone better than Solomon's here. What's up? You guys are missing it. So Solomon built a physical house. Jesus builds a spiritual house, a family that won't ever, you know, uh, be ruined or corrupted because it's rooted in his name. Okay, so this goes back to Hebrews 1. When he says, I'll be to him a father, he'll be to me a son. The context is building a house, building the name, building a family. That's what Jesus does. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, let all God's angels worship him. Okay, And the context here is Psalm 97, verse 7. He's quoting Psalm 97, verse 7. Let's go to Psalm 97. If you're not tracking and I lost you, I apologize. I'm trying to be thorough and clear and let there be some structure to this but um, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 is quoting Psalm 97 so again the context of sonship and being the rightful heir and king of the nations and that creation creator relationship Jesus has with everything else because he's the creator it says the Lord reigns um, but here's the quotation worship him all you gods now that's interesting because Hebrews 1 makes it to be angels. I think the idea there is that there are actually spiritual beings in the invisible, immaterial world that we don't see that are referred to as, not as the supreme, exclusive, eternally existent God, but as lesser G-O-D-S, cap, not capital G, but lowercase g. They're spiritual beings that have rule and authority um, in God's creation, and they maybe they messed up and they chose to rebel, just like Satan, Um and they lost it, and God's going to punish them. But there's a call for spiritual beings to worship the Son. So look, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. So here, I don't know why I said glad, like I'm from North Dakota. The Lord reigns. He sits on a throne, all authority. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. In case you missed it the first time. Right, so we have the throne of God from which he reigns over the whole entire world. And righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Remember those two themes? The throne of God and then righteousness and justice. Fire goes before him and destroys his, burns up his adversaries. So there's the enemies of God being destroyed again. That's a theme we've seen. The death and resurrection of Jesus is a destruction of his enemies. It's victory over the enemy. It's conquering spiritual beings and sin and death and darkness and the conquering. That's the death. That's how the biblical uh, authors will see that the death and resurrection of Jesus is not as a oh, bummer, as a triumph. He's, a, he's decimating the, the, the enemy. And eventually it will be a full decimation, but at least they're disarmed now. He disarmed rulers and, and, and principalities. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. So, so notice the, the creation-creator relationship. He's above it. Creation trembles. The Lord of all the earth, the rightful owner. You have to wonder, why did the author of Hebrews pick these out of the 150 Psalms there are? Why did he pick Psalm 97? Why did he pick Psalm 89? 
What do you think that's doing when you go back to the original psalm he's referencing and you read the whole context and you see all these ideas, what do you think that's doing for you? It's helping you to see Jesus how you're supposed to. The creation-creator relationship, owning all things as the rightful heir, destroying his enemies, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. All, All these different things, man. That's what it means for him to be begotten. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. All the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame. They make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Remember how Paul will say there's actually a demon behind the idols you you worship? Um, I think there's something to be said about that here in Psalm 97. That the idols they're bowing down to are nothing themselves, but behind them are what are referred to as lowercase g gods, spiritual beings that have some degree of rule and authority but are rebellious to God and they're going to be thrown into the pit. Zion hears and is glad and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. That goes back to the righteous justice of God's throne. O Lord, you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You're exalted far above all the gods. So again, here we have those spiritual beings as being very clearly beneath God. So why does Hebrews start off by saying, look, he's so above all spiritual beings, Jesus is, that his name is above all their names. His, his power, his authority, he's, he's above them all. And then he'll go on to say, to which, what, when did God ever say this to angels? So it's interesting that to make Jesus look, and, and you know, actually he truly is, to make him uh, rightfully look way better than angels, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews will quote Psalm 97. It's as if he's going, man, I got to show you that Jesus is superior to angels. Let me take you to Psalm 97. Let me quote from that passage and let you know. And you read like, wow, Lord, you're exalted far above all the gods. What are you supposed to see there? Oh, you who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and the joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous. Give thanks to his, and there's the last theme in Psalm 89, or 97, his name, his name. So we see the name of God. We see the righteous justice of, of God. We see his throne. We see the spiritual beings being beneath him. We see God being above creation. We see his enemies falling at his feet. And all those ideas we have consistently seen with each of these passages we've gone through. Hebrews 1, Psalm 89, Hebrews 5, Hebrews 1, Romans 1, Acts 13. There, there's such consistency. When you, re- learn, when you read the Bible, um, one of the most helpful things that has changed my life is not just recognizing repeating words, but what are those repeating words? What ideas, what themes are they communicating? What patterns do you see? And when I see the only Psalms that Hebrews 1 references, when I see these repeating ideas and themes, you have to take note. You, you really do. You have to go, why, why, is the, why are the nations and the king and the name and the enemies of God and the priesthood and, and that creation-creator relationship and the inheritance, why is that consistently brought up? Why do I see the suffering from the dead and being brought up to life and spiritual beings being beneath him? Why, why do I see that over and over and over in these Psalms? 
what is the author of Hebrews doing? He's trying to show you who the Son is. So he goes on. Look, of the angels, this is what God says about his angels. Psalm 104 here. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's not who Jesus is. He's far above that. He's quoting Psalm 104 here. So let's go to Psalm 104. Psalm 104 is an easy one to nail down because it's mostly just about how God is just above his creation. He goes, bless the Lord my soul. Lord my God, you are very great. And he is. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light. Like like it's a garment. (laughs) That's how just much of a boss God is. His clothing is light. If you were to, you know, anthropomorphize him. Stretching out the heavens like a tent. So this is the God creating, just so you know. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots. He rides on the wings of the wind. Do you know what's being said here? God created all things, and God owns all things. Why is that important to note? Because back to Hebrews 1, what is said of the Son in the first three or four verses? He's the heir of all things, and he's the one who created the world. The Father, through the Son, created the world. So the Son is a part of that. No matter how you try and disconnect the Son, go, well, he's the one they're creating. He's the rightful heir and owner of it all. So why reference Psalm 104, which tells us that God owns and is above all creation and created it? He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is the verse that's being quoted in Hebrews 1.7. He set the earth and its foundations so that it should never be moved. So even if the earth gives way, you know that psalm, we're still good. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. And he'll go on and on and on and talk about how you're over creation. You control this. You oversee this. You make sure this happens. He'll go on and on. This is the the Lord's world. We're just in God's world, living in it. And then it ends with what? Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So there's that triumph and victory over the wicked, the enemies of God. Go back to Psalm 2, the enemy nations that try and take their stand against God and God laughs, right? That's the idea. Um, Quick potty break and then we'll go to Psalm 102, Psalm 45, and Psalm 110 and we're done, all right? If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338, uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo. 
Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day, pretty much. Uh, We're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. All right. Here we are. All right. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. I went to go pee, saw my kids doing funny things, and in my mind, how easily I get distracted. I apologize. So that's Psalm 104. Let me take you back to Hebrews 1. So we looked at what? Psalm 2. And again, the context of Hebrews 1 is Jesus is better than angels. Let all God's angels worship him. You know, uh, he makes his angels, a, a, you know, ministers of fire, but of the sun. So here's the contrast. When you notice the word but in the Bible, try not to laugh, but it does signify some transition, some contrast. It's very important, the English language. Go back to, uh, I know I sound like a nerd, but grammar can make all the difference in your Bible study. So he says that about the angels, but he does not say that about the sun. Instead, look at what he says about the sun. Of the sun, he says, your throne, O God is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Do you remember the theme of righteous, upright, just rule? Like that idea of, um, you know, having righteousness on the throne and justice. Well, the son, the anointed one who's begotten of the father, he has exactly that. And he's quoting here, now look at, you've loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore, so here's what God does in response to that, God, your God, has anointed you. Remember how I said the language of being begotten refers to appointment, uh, being anointed for something, you know, being brought forth from the grave and conquering death. He's anointed with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. So let's go to what he's quoting. Psalm 45. Psalm chapter 45. Sometimes I honestly do forget that I'm live, so I apologize. Psalm 45. This is God speaking to the king. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. The sons of Korah, 
a love song. You're the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. So someone here is being blessed by God. And it seems to be this king who is lovely and worth celebrating and just overall awesome. Gird your sword on, on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Um, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the, for the cause of truth and meekness. Oh, righteousness, truth, and meekness. I want you to see this. This is linked to the victorious triumph of this king. His victory comes how? By truth, meekness, and righteousness. Pause. What king do we know conquered victoriously, triumphed over all his enemies in a truthful, meek, and righteous manner? Called going to the cross and being obedient to the Father and being willing to die at the hands of people that he made. Who did that? It's pretty clear. Easy answer. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. So here we see victory over the king's enemies. We see the king in his throne, his righteousness, his justice, as we've seen. We see the victory he has over his enemies. And here's the quotation we see. Hebrews 1 use. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Now, this psalm must have confused the bejeebers out of the audience in that day. With the oil of gladness beyond your companions, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory places, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider. Incline your ear. And he'll go on to talk about how the king is desirable. Um, and this, this, this woman, this daughter, this virgin daughter, has desirable beauty. Um, and then go on to talk about the chamber, the places of the fathers. And I want you to see this. Um, where is it? Did I miss it? Uh, the bride, the nations, all Where is it? This right here. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name, there's the name of this king, to be remembered in all generations. Nations, nations will praise you. So there we see the theme of the nations. We see the name of this king being remembered. Um, God causes his name to be supreme. The nations end up bringing gifts to the king. Uh, the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, right? Right here. We see the pagan nations bringing to this king gifts. Sounds like the, the wise men bringing gifts to Jesus, baby Jesus. They bring him um, frankincense, myrrh, Mur, murder. It's um, uh, why can't I remember the other one? Can you drop it in the chat? I'm just blanking out now. Frankincense and myrrh. Those are the only two that come to mind. What was it, guys? What was the other one? Um, anyone want to help me remember what it was that the wise men brought? Gold. 
good lord, how did I forget? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So I want you to see that the thank you, John, that the nations bringing gifts, the eternal name of God. So we see those themes: victory over the enemies, the righteous throne, the justice, um, the nations, this king having authority, and even like the nations willingly bringing themselves. Um, and the name of this king, which seems to reflect the name of God. Okay, all right there in this quotation of your throne is forever and ever. And the throne includes nations coming and going, we want to bring gifts, and then enemy nations being destroyed. Um, and the name of this king and his kingdom being forever. Hmm. And his you know, um, throne is established on righteousness and justice. Um and then go on, and he, this is cool, man. This verse right here is going to quote Psalm 102, okay? It says, you, Lord, again, the context is, hey, when did God ever say this to angels? And the answer is, never? Yeah, that's the answer, never. He's never said this to anyone, not even spiritual beings. So you're supposed to see the sun on another level. You, Lord, this is God speaking to the Son. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. How many times have we seen that theme of Jesus being a part of creation? Not being created, but bringing creation into existence. How many times have we seen that theme of Jesus being over creation, uh, the heir of creation, being the method of creation? I mean, I can tell you how many times we've seen it. We saw it specifically in Psalm 89, Psalm 97, Psalm 104, and now we're going to see it here in Psalm 102. Why is that consistently a theme? And in the very beginning of Hebrews, through whom he created the world, the Son is the method, the means. Not some object to be you know, abused and tossed aside, but like a partnership. The Son and the Father partnering. Why is that a theme over and over in Hebrews? And why does that frame up what it means that Jesus is the only begotten Son? Because you're supposed to see the Son alongside the Father in eternity doing all these things, bringing creation into existence, um, being over creation, coming down and you know conquering the nations. He's going to do that and all these different things. You laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Genesis 1.1, right there. Go read Genesis 1.1. In the beginnings, God made... In the beginnings... In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, right? Yep. Jesus is right there. Laying the foundation of the earth and the heavens. Just in case you're like, well, he only made the earth. God's like, let me handle the heavens. Nope. Before the heavens existed, whether that's the three-tiered cosmology or just the skies we see, if you want to go with that and go the sky, the cosmos, and then where God dwells, the heavens are the work of his hands. In fact, they will perish, but you remain there's an interesting statement Jesus makes where he says, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not. This is kind of like a, a different take on that. But instead of just the words of Jesus remaining, we have Jesus remaining as the word. They will all wear out like, like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they'll be changed. Who's the one bringing new creation into existence? Who's the one changing heaven and earth like a garment? Who's the one passing heaven and earth away to bring about the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem? It seems to be whoever the Lord is that laid the foundation. It's the Son. You are the same. Your years will have no end. Huh. That's Psalm 102. Let's go there. 
let's see if we can see any more ideas, any themes. And again, I'm, I'm not the one who, who chose what Psalms he's going to quote. He, he chose what Psalms he's going to quote. Of course, inspired by the Spirit. But look, he out of the 150 Psalms there are, he's chosen one, two, three, four, five, six. Let me just make sure I'm right. Seven. Seven Psalms. My guy had options. Why is he quoting Psalm 102? You'll see. Remember the themes that the Hebrews has in common and all the Psalms that he references? The author of Hebrews? The themes are this, um, to show you again, in case you've forgotten, don't look at my notes. Don't look at my notes, you cheaters. We've seen the nations. Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 102, Psalm 110. The king, well, I haven't gotten to Psalm 110 yet. The king and his throne and his kingdom, right? The name of God, the enemies of God and his king, the priesthood, Psalm 102, Psalm 110, Hebrews 5, creation and creator, righteousness and justice, inheritance and sonship, suffering, going into the death, the place of death, Sheol, and then spiritual beings. And so we've seen those themes. Now what I want to do is say, what themes are here in Psalm 102? All right, so track with me. See if you can find them. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Don't hide your face from me in the day of my distress. There's a day of distress going on here that we should highlight. Incline your ear to me. Answer speedily in the day when I call, for my days pass away like smoke. Hmm. There's a distressful call on the part of this servant. Right? This is a prayer of one afflicted. This is someone who's under incredible pressure, and he's suffering as a servant, it seems like, and he's crying out of distress to God. My days pass away like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass, and as I forget to eat my bread, there's groaning, there's, there's bones clinging to his flesh, there's I feel like I'm in a wilderness, there's I can't even sleep, verse 7, my enemies are around me taunting me, I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears, he's crying so much it's falling into his cup, he can't help but drink his own tears. Because of your indignation and anger, you've taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening. I wither like the grass. So there's some suffering going on, isn't there? Pause. But you, O Lord. Put a a pause on that suffering and that distress. But you, O Lord. And here's a good way for you and I to glean wisdom from this. Let's, Let's just pull ourselves out a minute and go, when we're in distress, here's what we can do. Here's what I'm going through. Here's what's not changing. Here's what's happening. Here's what sucks. But you. And then you start listing everything that's true of God. Everything that doesn't, that doesn't change about God. All of his benefits, all of his blessings, all of his attributes, all of his goodness in your life. And you go, you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. So there's a whole city involved here. The appointed time has come. Hmm. To be honest, this sounds like Jesus coming. When I think of God having mercy and graciously revealing his son to Jerusalem, to Israel first, 
and then Jesus goes into Jerusalem as the as the king, you know, riding on a donkey, lowly and humble and meek, and then they throw him on the cross. The, the appointed time of, of that favor, that mercy, that grace that comes with Jesus, right? It's come. Jesus was the one signaling that. Now, of course, there's a future for Israel that is um, where they all turn. And it's just the people of Israel go, he is the Mashiach. He is the one we've been waiting for. But I, I do believe the appointed time of mercy and grace is absolutely at least, firstly, Jesus coming to his own people and offering this grace and mercy. Your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations, circle that, nations will fear the name of the Lord. The kings of the earth will fear your glory. Now, this can either be a healthy reverence or a terrifying trembling. We're like, we're going to die. Which side are you going to be on, nation? Well, it's up to the king and the rulers of that nation. But either way, we see the theme of what? The nations and the kings coming to God. Guess what God regards? The prayer of the destitute. The, the prayer of the destitute he doesn't despise. This sounds like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane or Jesus on the cross making loud cries to the Father, praying in distress. That's what he does. He regards the prayers of his people. So we see the suffering of this, this person, this, this nation it seems like, uh, which is you know, represented by the one. He's withering away. There's, there's, there's possibly death looming over him. The nations and kings of the earth come to, to fear God and his name. Nations will fear the name. We almost missed that right here. The name of God right here. Um, the nations come again. And then you can go on and read about how you know God looks at the earth from heaven. He hears the groaning of the prisoners. He sets them free. It's like, well, how does God do that for Israel and Egypt? Well, he sends Moses. He goes, I've heard their cries. I'm sending you. How does God hear the cries of humanity in general from Abel all the way down to every other person who's crying out in distress. Well, he sends his son. That's his answer to, the, to our problem of sin, to being prisoners. He sends his son who declares the name of the Lord in Zion because he is the name of God. And he goes on, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth. So this is where we get our quotation from Hebrews 1. You laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They, they will perish, but you will remain. So when you're in distress and you're, just, you're, you're going through it, man, my encouragement to you and to myself is just remember who he is. Remember what he's done for you. Remember what he's promised. Remember what's coming. Just declare the praises of God. Go through all the different things you know about God and who he is, and, and this doesn't change. Even though my life is, is just going up and down, and right now I'm in the pit, he does not change. Life goes up and down. The world changes. Culture changes all the time, but you remain. That's like a really like helpful thing to remember. That's in, that, in, that will encourage someone. That the world around us is going to wear out like a garment. It's going to reach its end. There's an expiration date on the planet. But you will change them like a robe and they will pass away. So who's the one overseeing that? The unchanging God. You are the same your years have no end. As I spill over myself. The children of your servants, servants <laughs> shall dwell secure. 
their offspring shall be established before you. So, who is this about? Well, this is the psalmist declaring these things of God. The same quotation is used of who, though? Well, the author of Hebrews says it's the father talking to the son and saying, you lay the foundation, you remain. Not to his own exclusion, but I want you to see that. And again, this provides us the, when you read the entire letter to the Hebrews, just in the first chapter, these are the quotations, which give you a very clear understanding of what it means that Jesus is the only begotten. The last quotation is this, to which of the angels has God ever said, hey, sit at my right hand, authority, rule, power, dominion, until I make, oh, there it is again, your enemies, a footstool for your feet. The father is absolutely saying this about the son. When Adam and Eve eat from the tree and the serpent thinks he's one, God says this to the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, your offspring and her offspring. He. This offspring is mainly a he. Shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. That means this offspring of the woman has his heel or his foot above the head of the serpent and his offspring to crush his head. Even though the serpent might bite his heel and cause some, some mortal wound that doesn't last forever, this conquering seed of the woman is going to bring like a crushing blow that the serpent will not recover from and his offspring will not recover from. That's what's going on here. The crushing authority and victory over the serpent is attributed to the son sitting at the right hand of the father. In other words, the resurrection, the ascension, is Jesus, his death, is his victory over our enemies, God's enemies, and makes them a footstool to his feet. And that's happening, real time. There will be a day when the enemies of, of God are once for all his footstool. That's happening slowly and over time. When he finishes the process, that's up to him. But he's quoting Psalm 110, okay? And you need to know this about Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the only other place in the Bible, besides Genesis, is it 15 or 16? Besides Genesis 15 or 16, that mentions Melchizedek. Um, where is it? Or is it not Psalm 110? Was I confused? I'm pretty sure it's Psalm 110. Um, yeah, right here. Okay. And then Hebrews 5 will reference this. So this isn't the only time that Hebrews will reference Psalm 110. The first time notes Jesus' authority, power, rightful place at the right hand of the Father, triumph, ultimate just obliterating, obliterating of his enemies. And then later, he'll reference Melchizedek. You have to ask yourself as the reader, what do those two ideas have in common? Being a priest and having victory. How do those two ideas come together 
not just for Jesus, but for the author of Hebrews. Something worth considering, okay? Let's read Psalm 110. It's only seven verses. This one's fast. But Acts 2 and Matthew 22 will also quote this chapter. And it's important that you see how they quote it. The Lord said to my Lord, this is David speaking, the Lord says to his Lord. So there's a Lord who is over David that God is saying this to. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Hmm. So there's the theme of enemies being conquered. God inviting this one to sit at his right. He's an invitation. You don't get to just go, Lord, you have a seat at your right hand. Let me just take that seat. You know, James and, um, was it James and John? Yeah, it was James and John who tried that. Lord, when you come in your kingdom, let us, whoa, hold on. You even sent your mom? Guys, <laughs> what are you, 12? Listen, and he goes on to explain, like, it's not for you. To sit at the right hand of the Father, though, is for Jesus, because he has victory. Now, how did, he vi how did he triumph? Through his life, death, and resurrection, and ascension. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Oof. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So this is the conquering king. We've seen this over and over, guys. <laughs> over and over, man. Your people will offer themselves freely. That's the nations, again, bringing themselves to this king on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. That's why he's sitting at the right hand of the Lord. Because his work as high priest is done. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. How many times have we seen from these Psalms and the Hebrews that kings and enemies of God just get destroyed? Why is Jesus being king such an important characteristic of him being the only begotten? Think about it. He will execute judgment on the nations. So there's the nations filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. So I hope you saw it. We saw the priestly work of Jesus, the priesthood theme. We saw the victory over enemies. We saw the nations coming. We saw that throne, that mighty scepter representing the throne. So what you and I get to go through now is Acts 2, Matthew 22, and we're done. Because Hebrews is not the only place that quotes Psalm 110. And in the next episode, we'll kind of explain this a little more in depth. But for now, I want you to see Acts 2.32. Uh, this is Peter preaching a fire sermon. He says, this Jesus God raised up. Let's highlight the earth. These are similar ideas. Whenever you see like, Ideas or words that are really like almost synonyms of each other, highlight them. Highlight them. Jesus, well, God raised up. 
and of that we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God, he's letting you know what psalm he's about to quote, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Acts is all about connecting Jesus to the promises of the patriarchs. He's poured this out that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. David didn't ascend into the heavens. He himself says, look, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know God has made him. And this is where the Muslim or the Jehovah's Witness will go, see, Jesus was created. Go look at the word. It's like me taking on a different job or becoming a different, taking a different position, right? And the CEO makes me what? An employee. Or someone at the school makes me a teacher. Or someone, you know, at a church makes me one of the deacons. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So you have to ask questions like this. Wasn't Jesus always our master, our, our, our Messiah, our Savior? Technically, he is who he's always been. But that salvation wasn't rightfully and legally made available. I use the word legally because the law declared that it wasn't, there, was a, there was something in the way called human evil, called sin, called the wrath of God against human evil. And Jesus handles all of it. So in that sense, he's made to be our Lord and our Messiah. This Jesus and apparently the crucifixion is a part of it. In other words, Jesus is not exalted as the human representative we need, our high priest. He doesn't ascend into the heavens the way the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And he's not raised up from the dead unless he's first what? Crucified. So the death makes way for the exaltation, the ascension, and the being made our high priest who establishes a new covenant, who is our Lord and our Savior. He becomes that for us through the death and resurrection. That's not talking about being created. So God raises, and, and look, it's the, to have the authority as the human, the exalted human one in Daniel's vision, riding the clouds to the ancient of days, this exalted human one from the dead has made way for the spirit to come to humanity now in a way that he indwells us. God raises Jesus up, exalts him to his right hand. Jesus receives the promise of the Spirit from the Father to pour out to his people. And yet John 14 will tell us, Jesus sends the Spirit. Um, Jesus ascends into the heavens to sit at God's right hand, noting finished work as high priest. David never did that. He was never a high priest, first of all, and he didn't ascend. God has made Jesus Lord in Christ through the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. This being made means, look, Jesus wasn't a human before. He is now. Well, he wasn't our human representative before. He is now. He wasn't the first resurrected human before his death and resurrection. He is now. He wasn't seated at the right hand of the Father as our high priest, as one of us. He is now. So in that sense, God made him to be what he wasn't prior. It's really not that hard for people who overcomplicate it and go, he's created. You are out of your mind. You're absolutely out of your mind. Matthew 22 is the last place where someone to, at least what I want to touch on today, is quoted. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, hey, you guys asked me some questions. My turn. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? 
And they said, well, he's the son of David. <laughs> Dummy. He said to them, well, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? No one, had, no one denied the, the uh, uh, what's it called? The inspiration of the spirit behind David's writings. Even David says, the spirit is, you know, spoke through me. And you're like, whoa, David, take it easy. And God's like, no, he's right. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? That assumes that whoever David is calling Lord exists before he comes on the earth to be the physical descendant of David. Right? And that would just have blown their minds. The Christ is the son of David. That's what we had to see first. The Mashiach has to descend physically from David. David calls his future descendant the Lord in the Psalms as if he's already present and existing, as if he's already superior to David, but he has not yet come through the line of David. So as the king, David should only have one Lord. That's God. So why does he have two? Verse 45 the Christ has sonship that goes beyond simply descending from David. In other words, he seems to be fathered by another. His sonship, whoever this, this Lord over David is, his sonship transcends just physically descending from David. How is he the son? And they're like, we don't, we don't know, okay? Jesus is like, got him. Got him. So, apparently, what it means for Jesus to be the only begotten Son means this. And we'll explore this more in detail. The next time someone goes, you know, Jesus was created because, you know, He Himself is the only begotten. He's conceived. So, to come through the Virgin Mary means he didn't pre-exist that human life. Well, it, uh, so can he be conceived yet pre-exist his human life? Technically, he's delivered out of death. The word begotten in the Greek literally means, and I'll pull up so you can see it. I'll pull it up so no one's going, you pulled that out of your butt. going to make a joke, but I refrained. See that? Self-control. Hebrews 1. Let's go with Hebrews 1.5. We've already seen how this word, the Jehovah's Witness Bible will just absolutely decimate these verses with an agenda. It's pretty stupid. You can probably hear the frustration in my voice because it's leading people astray into death, and that's not fun. That's not cool. If you're okay with that, I don't know what to do. Okay, this is what the word ganeo literally means. Can't see it. Let's zoom in. Okay. Um, it's right there. So no one's wondering. To beget, to bring forth. Is Jesus begetted, begotten? Absolutely. From the dead. The appointment, 
the installment, the establishment, the anointing. God validates the Son. The Father validates and approves of and makes a decree about the Son to be high priest, to be representative, to be mediator, to be uh, Mashiach, to be ultimate king as our human representative, to beget, to bring forth, to bring to, okay? Uh, it can be used to refer to pro procreating a descendant. But the word coming from, and again, when you just run to a Greek lexicon and go, in every instance, there's, there's variance in Hebrew and Greek words, just like in the English. So when, you, when I say, um, I don't know, I can't think of a word off the top of my head, trash. And I go, oh, that dunk was trash. Or oh, that song was trash. Am I, am I literally saying that we need to throw it in the garbage? No, I'm saying that it was low quality. Just words have different meanings depending on context, especially as culture evolves and as words like trash become that, that these kids use to make me seem dumb. So the point there is, no, it does not mean to create. If it ever is used, procreate, to bring into existence, it's used of procreating with, again, human beings or to bring them into existence but not prior, prior existence. Um, so I want you to see that all these different things, when someone goes, what does it mean that Jesus is uh, begotten of the Father? Well, that refers to the nations being under him. That refers to him being the king uh, of all and having the rightful king. That refers to him carrying and being the embodiment of the name of the Lord. That refers to him conquering the enemies of God. That refers to him having the priesthood that never ends. That refers to him being creator over creation. Him ruling in righteousness and justice. Him being the rightful heir and having the sonship none of us did. Him suffering and going into the, the place of the dead, resurrecting. Him, him being over spiritual beings in authority, power, rank, preeminence, all of it. All of it. So, I just don't think there's any case biblically to say that Jesus being the only begotten means, I want to try and pull up the next episode we're going to go through before we go through it. Go through it. Um, we're going to look at the word ganeo. That's what we're going to do. So for people that are like, I don't know, you just showed us ganeo. Okay, we'll look at the word ganeo. Ganao. How the freak you want to say it? In every single instance it's used. Um, and we're going to look at to see like uh, every other New Testament verse of Jesus being begotten. Hebrews 5.5. 5, Acts 13, we were to look at John 3.16. We're going to look at what monogane means, ganeo, okay? Appointment, installment so far to the king at the rightful throne is his. That's what it seems to be. Uh, John 1.18, 1 John 4.9, Matthew 3.17, Matthew 17.5. This idea of Jesus being the only begotten son, we're going to look at in the next episode. So tune in Monday. Monday, Monday, April 24th, be there, it's going to be a fun one, uh, angels were also present before the creation, it says so, Job and Psalms, they can be present before the creation of the world, but that doesn't make them uncreated, there's only one uncreated, eternally existent one, you can't have, um, 
God being uncreated while being in competition with other un- uncreated beings. Because then the question becomes, who's the real uncaused cause? Who's the first cause? Angels are created beings. It's very clear in scripture. They might precede creation as the world existing. That's fine. Um, so, I think that's it, guys. If you guys didn't already know, this is an online ministry. You can visit abovereproachministry.com to check out everything that we have available. Um, a bunch of free resources, actually, if you didn't know. We have a bunch. Um, the huge. We have, uh, I want to pull up a list. We have free Bible study devotionals, free Bible study skills courses online, free Bible study worksheets, all of my sermon notes that I've used for the series I've done on YouTube. We have a free online church community. Come join on Discord. It's a, it's a, it's an app. Okay, we're not sewing Discord. Um, you can get a copy of my book, Fruitful. Sample it on the website. Join our podcast. We have a second podcast called Above Reproach Church Podcast, ARC. Um, we also have a second channel for creators and those who are wanting to do online ministry. Um, you can go check that out, Above Reproach Creators. All those links are in the description below. Right? And then there's ways to give to this ministry because what we're trying to do is teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. We're trying to move people towards Jesus. So the way that you can help us do that is by supporting. I have a wife and two kids. You know, There's a lot that goes into this ministry um, that God makes possible by giving you know, generous supporters like you guys to make it happen. So if you want to help resource what we're doing, we create all these resources to everyone around the planet completely free. You can go to abovereproachministry.com slash donate, give through debit or credit card, cash app, PayPal, Venmo, uh, Patreon. Uh, you can mail a check to 338, PO Box 338, Green Cove Springs. There's a bunch of ways because I know some people aren't comfortable giving online. So that's all I have for you guys today. I'm just above the two-hour mark. Yes. I'll see you guys on Discord. See you later. Keep moving towards Jesus.